I decided if I did a book club discussion with this, I would pair it with a very stiff gin martini because I feel like that's something you need maybe after you do the job he's doing. (laughs) Just give me a martini. (laughs) I thought you were going to say after reading about the job he's doing. (laughs) Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, we are celebrating our 400th episode soon. And to do that, we're having a special mailbag episode. We would love to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail, send us an email, share your questions for the team or questions about the show and how it ends up in your podcast players each week. Tell us your What Should I Read Next stories, share your favorite guests, or tell us the books you got from the show that you loved or were surprised to really enjoy. If you'd like to submit a question or tell us anything, please leave us a voicemail by calling 502-627-0663 or send us an email at hello at modernmrsdarcy.com. Please send these in by Wednesday, September 20th for inclusion in this show. And thank you in advance. We can't wait to hear from you. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for today's conversation. I know I'm not the only one who loves cracking open a well-written cookbook to read it like a novel. Today, I'm joined by cookbook author and fellow reader Brie McCoy to talk about the art of reading and writing cookbooks and the kitchen lessons she's distilled into her new release, The Cook's Book. As you'll hear, there are a lot of similarities to The Reading Life. Brie and I have a blast talking books and cooking today, and we also put a fresh spin on book flights by pairing some favorite novels with their perfect food or drink partners. Whether you're a devoted cookbook reader or you're looking at this genre with fresh eyes, whether you just want to have some fun at home or wow your book club with the perfect pairing, I think you'll find our conversation today will whet your appetite for your next culinary read. Let's get to it. Brie, welcome to the show. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. 
Oh, I'm so excited to talk. I feel like we've been talking about books between us forever. And we've been talking about doing this casually for a while. And I'm so glad the day is finally here. Same. We really have been. It's been really fun to just talk to you on the side about books and writing books. And now look at us (laughs) doing podcasts. (laughs) Doing podcasts. And I'm so glad we are. Okay, Brie, for those of us readers who are new to you and your work, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Let's start with as a person and as a reader. Yes. I, as a person, am a reader. I also am. (laughs) I love reading, so I'm on the right podcast. Um, I also, I call myself an accidental home cook. It's something I really love to do, but I didn't really start cooking until after I got married and I truly fumbled into the kitchen and had to teach myself how to cook from the ground up, but now I love it. I'm also a military spouse. My husband, Jeremy's in the Air Force and we travel every three years. So I think my love for food really ramped up there also because it's the way that we've been able to find community moving literally every three years. And where are you all in the world right now? I know that you made a move not that long ago. Yes, almost a year ago, we moved to St. Louis. So, and we've loved it. We've really enjoyed the city. We had no idea anything about St. Louis. We knew there was an arch and that was about it. And I know you and I have enjoyed talking about like the independent bookstores you can check out and the reading scene and what that could be like for you as a reader and as a cookbook author. Yes, it's been so fun to connect with you because you do know St. Louis. And so I was so excited to talk with you about where do I go? Where are the bookstores? Where are the places to eat? Exactly. And it's been fun to vicariously experience St. Louis again through you. So thank you for making that possible for me. Now, Brie, we do chat a lot about what we're reading. Would you tell us a little bit about like what reading means to you and what your reading life is like these days? Oh, yes. I would say I loved reading my whole life, but for a really long time, I would say until maybe my later 20s or early 30s, I really stuck to nonfiction. I had this weird concept in my head that reading didn't mean anything unless I was like learning something and I could only learn something through nonfiction. It was very wild. I don't know if I got it from like after graduating college or what it was, but I had a really long plane trip coming up and a friend of mine was like, you have got to read The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. And I was like, oh, I don't really do fiction. She recommended it so highly and I read it and I was like, oh, I am missing out. What weird rule did I place in my head that nonfiction is the only way to go? And so since then, I have been all the way fully into all kinds of books, all genres. I just, I can't get enough. I don't really do fiction. (laughs) You've come a long way. I'm so happy for you. I really have. (laughs) (laughs) What do you especially enjoy as a reader these days? So a new series to me is fantasy. When I started reading, I was like mystery, thriller, or historical fiction, which was what Mm -hmm. The Nightingale was. And I just really stuck there. But recently, a lot of people have been encouraging me to get into realistic fantasy. And I just did not think I could get into it. There's so much world building. There can be so many characters. But I started out with A Court of Thorns and Roses. And now I'm like all the way bought in. (laughs) (laughs) I've never read that series. Oh, you will stop living life and only read. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's what I do sometimes, which sounds amazing. And also, I don't know. Listeners, you tell us. Do you want to hear about Sarah J. Moss every episode for like four while I get through the series? 
Yes. The answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> Bree, um, our audience is compiled of people who love books, obviously, um, many of whom are avid readers, like people who read way more than the national average. And something that I think is really interesting about the data on avid readers is when they want to know something, they go to a book. That's true for hobbies. That's true about learning things. And that's true about things like cooking. And something I really love as a reader is that experience of picking up a beautiful cookbook, not just to like make dinner, but to sit on the couch and read it like a novel, just like for pure entertainment. Sometimes Will jokes that some of the books I read, like hardcore flower gardening, like in depth, like 19 different kinds of dahlias in the same bed or like really elaborate recipes that that's like kind of like science fiction. Because yeah. it's never going to happen, never going to happen <laughs> in this house. But but you have a new cookbook called The Cook's Book. And I would love to talk about that, not just from the perspective of like, hey, let's go make dinner, which we did make dinner with one of your recipes the other night and it was delicious, but not just from that perspective, but also from a readerly perspective. I love that. I do love reading cookbooks. Even before I started to learn to cook, there was a draw for me. I would always find myself wandering over to the cookbook aisle and bookstores. And there was something about picking it up. It, it's so visual, but it also feels like a full experience with all the photos. And I love when there's stories. I love when there's different backgrounds covered, different cultures covered. I just feel like I can be transported to a different place reading like just a recipe. That's so interesting. And I have to say that is not a way of looking at it that I ever thought about it. But like a good cookbook is totally immersive. Like even from the way that it lays flat on your coffee table yes. or your kitchen counter, and you can just like pour over it without even having to think about holding it open. I love photos. I will cook from a cookbook that doesn't have photos. Hello, Joy of Cooking that basically taught yes. me to cook in the early aughts. But oh, I really want my my cookbooks to have photos. And I really love them to have stories about the why, the how, the what this recipe means, the funny anecdote. Like those are the things I really love. But I feel like we should roll back. You do have a new cookbook out. It's called The Cook's Book. And would you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, I wrote The Cook's Book. I think of this book as the book that I wanted when I was learning to cook. I remember being in the kitchen and truly not understanding even where to start I didn't know anything about chicken, about salt, about seasoning. I, I knew nothing. So I would open up a cookbook, usually at one that I would purchase just because I thought it was pretty. I wouldn't understand so many things in it. Like it would say saute or a pinch of this or taste and season more. And I would be like, these are, it, it was such a foreign concept to me to taste and see if I needed to add something else. I was like, what's something else? And how much of something else? So I'd find myself not only with a cookbook, but also Googling, also calling my mom. And it just felt way overwhelming to bring a meal together every night when I was relying on so many different resources with such limited understanding of this act of cooking. And so the cook's book really was my response to here is everything that I think someone needs to become a more confident and joyful home cook. I teach a lot of techniques that are stackable in the book, with recipes. So we learn a technique and then we make a recipe. Then we stack a technique on top of that technique and we make another recipe. And so the whole book is an experience. And once you've cooked through the end of it, you will have some of the most powerful skills and techniques and recipes that you could have to be a competent home cook. So drawing from your experience of reading and not just using 
cookbooks. I'm so curious to hear how you thought about that as a cookbook writer. How did you think about the readers who are going to sit down and open the book, not just for the recipes and education, which are really important, but also they're there for the actual reading experience, like similar to why we read and enjoy novels. It's so soothing and so much fun and delightful to sit down with a cookbook and read it like it's any other good book. Talk to me about making that happen. That was such an important part of writing this book. In fact, um, once I turned the book in, they were like, this is way too many words. And I was like, I'm telling stories. I've got stories to share. Don't worry, everybody. We, we got it down. It's, 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 not, it's not 800 pages. But telling stories was really important to me because I feel like I want people to open this book and see themselves in it as well. I never want any of my recipes or any of the ways that I teach how to cook to come across as pretentious or I would never make that or I don't even know what that ingredient is or I don't have that background. I really come from it at the standpoint of, hey, we're the same actually. I think we're very much the same. And let me share some stories that I think you will also have similar stories to. And then let's together, like hold hands and walk into the kitchen and cook. That taps on some of the things that I really love in my cookbook writing when I'm reading other authors, the relatability. Like I want to know we're in this together. And oh my goodness, when you said that this is the cookbook you wished you'd had, I related to that so much. I feel like all the books I've written are, I mean, aside from the journals, where I feel like, hey, I've talked to a bunch of you. I think this is a good idea. But the other books are like an exploration of like trying to figure something out. Like that's the place that I really have written from. And you kind of can invite readers along on a journey to figure that out alongside you. And I really resonated with the way you did that in the Cook's book. Thank you. I think that is always really a good sign when someone sits down to write a book is like, this is what I wish I had. Maybe I'm the one to write it. I think so. So Brie, as you put all this together, what do you think makes for good cookbook writing? The kind of writing that you would want to sit with on the couch and like flip through like you were reading The Nightingale. I really love when a cookbook author takes us into their own background, into their own culture, into the food that they grew up with, because I truly feel like it does transform for me my own experience, it, it does feel like I'm reading a novel. I'm in their grandmother's kitchen with them. I am learning about different foods that maybe I hadn't heard of. I'm tasting them. I love when cookbook authors can make your mouth water where you are like, I am tasting this right now. Or cookbook authors who explain an ingredient so well that I'm literally picking up my phone and adding it to my grocery list or searching like, where can I find this? I think it is so much more helpful and a more enjoyable experience than some authors who can just be like, here's your recipe, enjoy. And I'm like, what is that? I've never heard of that ingredient. I don't know what it tastes like. I don't know what other dishes I would use it in. Why is this an important ingredient to you? I really want to feel like I sat down with that person over coffee and I understand exactly why they wrote that recipe and why they want me to also make the recipe. That sounds great. And like that's bringing to mind some of my favorite cookbook writing that I've really enjoyed. You talked about story and family history. And that makes me think of like Janae Claiborne's Sweet Potato Soul, where she's like, let me tell you about my grandmother, because that's how I need to describe this book to you. Or, oh my goodness, um, Bryant Terry, his book Vegetable Kingdom, an Afro-vegan. I was thinking of you because, well, I was thinking about this topic of like 
reading cookbooks. He said in the introduction to Vegetable Kingdom that he had dozens of people tell him how much they loved his last book, Afro-Vegan. And they told him that they looked at the pictures, they read the head notes, they played his suggested songs, and they show their friends and family the book. That's like totally that immersive experience you were talking about. Yes. But they don't really cook from it. And he said, like, in his <laughs> defense, they usually admit that they rarely cook from any of their cookbooks. But that kind of made me chuckle. It made me think like a good cookbook is so much more than just recipes, but also you really want the recipes to work, which made me think of more of the like relatable, funny, story-driven cookbook writers I like. Like um, I love Smitten Kitchen, Deb Perlman. And when we were getting ready to go to Paris, I grabbed Barefoot in Paris by Ina Curtin (gasps) off the shelf so I could just like, tell tell me about France, Ina. (laughs) Show me the food. Oh my gosh, that's so smart. I love that you grabbed a cookbook about the place that you were going to visit. That's so smart. I'm going to do that next time. I always try to get a cookbook from wherever I'm traveling. Like I want to get a cookbook from that place where I'm traveling to. Like as a souvenir or like to get ready for your trip? As a souvenir. So I'll be like recently, I think in London, I found a cookbook um, from a London author and I brought the book back home and I made some of the recipes and it just kind of transported me back. Oh, I do the same in Thailand. Like, I just always want to grab a book and be like, I want to recreate these recipes when I get back home. And also, it is kind of like a souvenir. That's an amazing souvenir and also a very happy one to bring home. (laughs) So I'm glad it (laughs) keeps on benefiting you now that you're home and it was worth that suitcase weight. Yes. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. Brie, I'd love to hear about some of your favorite cookbooks that you really enjoy reading. Ruth Rachel has one called My Kitchen Year, and I mm. love it so much because it is very story-driven. It's also about, you know, she calls them like recipes that saved her life in that year. And I just love kind of it having a theme around like these are recipes that like save you in some ways. And um, another one I really love is called Smoke and Pickles by Edward Lee. And they're recipes and stories from a new Southern kitchen. He's won a lot of awards and he often like will go into his Korean background and heritage to infuse different styles of cuisines and foods. 
I love when cuisines kind of like intersect with each other and see how they can play with each other. And I think he does such a fantastic job of that. Okay. I have to blow your mind for a second. (gasps) He's a local restaurateur here. You need to come to Louisville. We'll go to 610 Magnolia. Wait, what? Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I need to go there. It is on my (laughs) list. Why have I not gone? Oh my gosh. Well, and I'm I'm pretty close to you now. You are. Maybe a little far for dinner, but you know. Yeah. (laughs) I'll have to spend the night. (laughs) Just an overnighter. Easy, easy. I love that. I'll have to take another look at his cookbook, knowing how much you love that work. Bree, something I really noticed in the cookbook and appreciated as you're trying to help people get the lay of the land and figure out how to approach what many can see as a daunting topic, and that is managing their kitchen and making dinner, which is relentless, (laughs) like every single night. But so many of those principles, I was really surprised to notice how similar they are to things that I believe and talk about a lot for the reading life. So the cook's book includes, as you well know, a home cook's manifesto for everyday cooking. And I'd love for you to tell us more about that. But there are a couple points here that are so completely crossover to the reading space that I was just really struck by that. So tell us more about distilling what you've learned in the kitchen into this manifesto and why these principles matter and perhaps not just for cooks. I wanted to come up with what I call a manifesto or principles to kick us off in the book to just be like, here is a foundation for you as you go into cooking because I don't want anyone to enter the cooking space to feel like they have to be perfect all the time. It's like you said, we're cooking every night not every meal is going to be 10 out of 10. And so how do we kind of determine what was a win or how do we take the stress off of ourselves from cooking every night? And that's where this manifesto came from. So there are 10 principles that I think help. For example, one of my favorites is a recipe is a compass, not a GPS. When I first started to learn how to cook, I thought the recipe was the law And so I would see in my pan, like my chicken is clearly burning, but the recipe said to cook for six minutes and it's only been five. So I'm just going to let it keep cooking (laughs) or it would say like, add two teaspoons of salt and I'd add it. And I would think that is not salty enough, but I wouldn't add any more because I'd be like, well, the recipe said only two teaspoons. And what I've realized as I've gained more confidence in the kitchen is I look at a recipe now as a guide. It's very helpful. I love recipes, but I can pivot away from it to meet my own taste, to meet the taste of my family, or if I don't have an ingredient on hand or if something's going awry, like a fire or something, I can put that out. I don't have to, I don't have to be like, that's weird. The recipe said this shouldn't happen. I love that. And that made me think so much of what we put in our 2021 summer reading guide, actually, where in the front we say like, Think of this as your summer reading roadmap. It is not Mm. meant to be an itinerary. It is designed as a roadmap because an itinerary tells you where to go and when, but a roadmap shows you all the places you could explore if you wanted. And you see the similarities. Yes. I love that because it gives a guide gives people so much freedom and I think takes away some shame of like, I didn't get to that book or, oh, I didn't make the recipe exactly the way I thought it was going to come out. A guide brings so much more freedom. Yes. And it makes me think of all the times I hear from readers, like, what is wrong with me? Like everybody else had one experience with this book, which first of all was a misconception. And I didn't. (laughs) What am I doing wrong? So good. Mm -hmm. And it kind of points to like, well, maybe it's not just you. Okay. And also principle number nine, mistakes are the best teachers. Would you talk about that? Because every week on What Should I Read Next, we ask readers when we do do literary matchmaking to tell us about a book that didn't work for you. 
which wasn't necessarily a mistake, but I have a feeling that your principle is related to the framework of our show. Would you jump in there? I love that you asked that question, by the way. And for cooking, mistakes are the best teachers. I like lean into this so hard because when I was learning to cook, if I messed up or if I, you know, failed at something, I immediately went to a place of, you know, either frustration or shame, like something's wrong with me. I'm not a good home cook. I didn't read the recipe right. And what I was missing is that I just signed up for a course I didn't know I was enrolled in and I just graduated because I learned a very valuable lesson. For example, a lot of the lessons would be, you know, one time I accidentally added a lot of salt to the top of our blueberry muffins because I had not labeled the jars at all. Lesson learned. That was a mistake. These muffins are very salty, but I was like, I need to label my jars. I I can't just think that I'm always going to know, especially if I'm in a rush or I've done the same with like what to do if my chicken is undercooked. Okay. Like, you know what? Maybe use a meat thermometer. So it's just like, instead of looking at as like, I messed up, I am a mess up or I screwed up, look at it and be like, wow, I just learned a really valuable lesson that I'm probably never going to (laughs) forget. And I think sometimes the lessons are interesting. Like, you know, I think I made this recipe exactly the way I wanted to fulfill its best platonic ideal. Not to get too lofty. And also, I don't like it. Yes. It's not to my taste. Yes. Tried it. Been there. You know, now I know. No, thank you. Exactly. And that's how I feel. I've learned a lot about like my own taste or how to identify taste, which is number four, bring all your senses to the party, like touch, taste, smell, all of it is because you can, you start to pull those things out. Like, oh, I don't love things super citrusy, or I actually prefer things way more salty than most people like them. And you just start to learn that, which obviously makes you a better home cook. You're able to look at recipes and very quickly know how to adjust them. I wouldn't add that much of this, but I would add a little bit more of that. Just for the record, when we cook together, I like things super citrusy. Same. Oh, we're going to be fine. That's my jam. I love citrus. Something that I love about that number four of the manifesto, bring all your senses to the party, is it makes me think of all the fun things that readers everywhere like to do when they're enjoying a good book and they really want to transform it into a multi-sensory experience. And I also know, we're getting back this way after the pandemic, I also know a lot of book clubs that do this, that really lean into the food and the beverage and the decor and everything when they're reading a book and they want to gather to talk about it in as multi-sensory a way as they can. And something that I know that you've had some fun doing this year, maybe longer than that, is pairing books with food and drink that really pull out and draw attention to some of those books' elements in a new and, you know, like really satisfying, tactile way reading happens in your head. And when you make it happen in your mouth and your hands as well, that can just be so fun. Yes, I love that. I love doing those kind of pairings because for a lot of us, we are experiencing that book, but we're experiencing it maybe like solo, you know, on an airplane in our own reading chair. And it's like, how can we like make it more of an experience? Maybe I like enjoy this book, drinking the same thing that the main character is drinking, or maybe I make a recipe that was really popular in this book and then have people over to the table and we talk about the book. I love that. For example, I was trying to pair a drink with a book I recently read with my cook's club and I just could not, there was not a drink that was really mentioned in the book. There wasn't a lot of food references. 
And I was, I was like really struggling. So I was like, I bet someone on Google has figured this out. So I went to Google and I think I just put like book and food pairings. I put the name of the book in, I believe, and was like pairings. And what was so funny is that your website came up first. It was like the number one search. It was your guide to like pairing books together. And I was like, this is so brilliant. I loved that you did that. Book Flights from 2013. And that was Ruth Reichel's Garlic and Sapphires, wasn't it? Because we've talked about this before. Yes. Oh, yes. That's, that's what it was. Oh, my gosh. I love that book so much. So good. So what I told you in that 2013 blog post was, I think it's called Reading is Better When It's Done Wine Tasting Style. And I was saying, you know, like a good wine flight at a restaurant that lets you sip and compare and contrast and just really appreciate all the offerings instead of just enjoying the one. I mean, one is good, but you learn a little bit more. You have a more nuanced experience with multiple I was saying, what if we did that with books, like purposeful pairings of books? And I talked about how let's call it a book flight. If you Google book flight, you'll get a lot of offerings for travel. Just heads up. You got to be a little more purposeful. So I might have offered a a book flight with garlic and sapphires, but I did not order a beverage pairing. What did you decide to pair with that book? I think we actually ended up doing a paper plane cocktail. And it was mostly because it's really nice bright and acidic. And I felt like a lot of the foods that she ends up eating in that book are very rich and decadent. And so I wanted something that would cut through all of that. And so we did this really fun pink cocktail. Oh yes. And I think I wore a pink wig to it. Like we were like, let's come in costume (laughs) also, because that was the whole thing in garlic and sapphires. She dresses up. So when you're thinking about pairing a book with a food or a beverage, what elements do you consider, Brie? Like, how do you think about this? The first thing, and I think the thing that is the most obvious for me is, is there a beverage or a food that is coming up a lot in this book? Like the author loves to drink something that they're often talking about, or is there a food that they are often referencing or ordering at restaurants? And whenever I see that, I immediately am like, oh, this, okay, this is a very fun, easy book and food and wine pairing. If there isn't something that's obvious to me, I kind of go with like the feel of the book. Like, oh, this book made me feel super moody or this book was like super bright. It was set in the summertime. So maybe I want like a frosé or a fun summer beverage. Just, I, I go more into the like, what do I feel? What does this book make me feel? Okay. So can we play a fun party game? <gasps> yes. What if we talk about some books that I know you've read and enjoyed lately, and you can suggest food and drink pairings that you think might make for a multi-sensory atmospheric reading experience? Oh, I love this. This is going to be really fun. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, 
where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. I know that you read a romance novel that I loved last year because yours truly was this year. So some of you already know the author. This is Abby Jimenez, Part of Your World, which is such a sweet, fun Midwestern story that's, you know what? You read it. You enjoyed this. I'll let you take it from here. Oh, I loved this book. It was like such a fun rom-com and I loved the whole like different worlds. Alexis is one of the main characters and she's an ER doctor who is being pressured by her parents to like follow in their footsteps, but she finds herself in like this small town and obviously as rom-coms go, runs into a very attractive carpenter who is of course 10 years younger than her. And, you know, a fling happens, but they're both coming from like such different worlds that through the whole book, you're like, how are they ever going to make this work? And so because there were two very different worlds happening in this book, I thought it would be fun to pair something like a champagne, like very high class, high brow. It has to be champagne from France with a grilled cheese. No $7 Trader Joe's per second here. <laughs> no $7. French we got to go all the way to France. <laughs> We got to get the champagne and then, yeah, something just like so simple and greasy, but yummy as a grilled cheese. And I would eat and drink those together. Salty goes with champagne all the time. Salty, cheesy, gooey. Okay. I like your style and that never would have occurred to me. How much fun would that pairing be to have at a book club? Oh my gosh. That would be such a good time. So fun and so easy. You all, uh, if you do it, post photos, let us know. It's such friendly food, too. Yes. And welcoming, which feels like the vibe of the book. It really does. All right. What else have you read lately that you've got a good pairing for? I never thought I would read a book by this author. It's Billy Summers by Stephen King. And the only book that I have read by him was his memoir called On Writing. And I loved it. And I know he's an amazing author, writer. I loved his writing in his book on writing. But I don't do paranormal books. I just... I can't. And I don't do like super scary books. And so I just thought I will probably never read a book from him. But I think it was last year or two years ago, Laura Tremaine was talking about his book, Billy Summers. And she was saying for anyone who has wanted to read a Stephen King book, but cannot get into the paranormal or the gore, this is the book. So I was like, I trust Laura, I'm going to do it. And it really is. Basically, Billy Summers is a killer for hire. And he's like the best that there is in the game. But the catch is he's only going to do the job if the target is a bad guy. So he's always kind of doing his own research. Like, is this guy really bad? Will I take the job? After years of doing this, he's like 
done. He's ready to call it quits. He's been saving all his money. He just wants to go live a quiet life, but he has to take on just one more job. Of course, of course, or there will be no book. So of course he has to go take one more job and literally everything that could go wrong goes wrong. I could not put this book down. It is very long, but I just like sank all the way into it. And I decided if I did a book club discussion with this, I would pair it with a very stiff gin martini because I feel like that's something you need maybe after you do the job he's doing. (laughs) Just give me a martini. (laughs) I thought you were going to say after reading about the job he's doing. (laughs) Both probably. I probably, as the reader, needed a stiff martini after it. Oh, that's good. I love that pairing. So is it fair to say that's like a moody match? Yes, very moody. I love it. I also know you really enjoyed Peter Heller's The Guide, the follow-up to The River set in a very ominous COVID-era Colorado setting. Yes. You know what? I actually think I discovered Peter Heller from listening to an episode with you. That makes me so happy. I loved The River so much. I don't know if I was fully prepared for the thriller aspect of the guide, but I loved it. I loved it. I couldn't put it down, but it's about Jack who is in the river and he takes a summer job as a fly fishing guide at this luxury resort known as Billionaire's Mile. It's like, okay. Um, But it's like super like closed in and there's barbed wire everywhere. But Jack is like, I'm just going to do this for the summer. I'm going to help this country music star get fish basically and go fly fishing. But um, he starts to notice some things on this quote unquote resort and it takes a very eerie turn. And so I actually ended up pairing this with instant coffee because I felt like, you know, when you're in the outdoors or even when you're camping, you know, you're waking up really early to go fly fishing. You just need to get out there. I just imagine this with some instant coffee, maybe a s'mores later in the evening as you're all sitting around the campfire. And a side note on instant coffee, I just discovered whipped coffee, which is made with instant coffee, and it is delicious. So instant coffee can be good. One, I'm still dubious as much as I trust you. Two, what is whipped coffee? So whipped coffee, I believe it kind of has its roots in a bunch of different places, but I really was tracing it back more to Korea, it seems like. And it's where you take instant coffee, hot water, and some sugar, just like two tablespoons of each and you whip it. I use my coffee frother and you whip it and it is really foamy and frothy, like a frosting almost, like a light airy frosting. And you just pour it on top of milk. It is so good. I feel like for people who don't have espresso makers and have wanted to try the shaken iced espresso, this is the route to go because you don't need any, I mean, you use instant coffee. You don't need any like coffee maker or anything to bring it together. Okay. I wonder if my dubiousness here is in part because I'm a decaf drinker and my experience with decaf instant coffee is poor, but that sounds amazing. And you know what? I have espresso powder in the house. Really, it's because of my love for the Barefoot Contessa outrageous brownie recipe and Yosia Refi's snacking cakes recipes. She calls for espresso powder a lot. So I wonder if we could do something with that in this house. Will can drink it and I can have a sip. Oh, yes. You absolutely can. That's so smart. That's also why I had was Ina Garten's recipe. I was like, well, I have this and I only ever use it very rarely. <laughs> <laughs> I love how this would also be so much fun for book club. I mean, I wouldn't have s'mores with my friends and talk about books and drink coffee. However, one makes it. Yeah, however one makes it. Bring your own coffee. 
You really could. Yeah. Another book that I really love that I would love to do a pairing with is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. Oh my gosh, this book I was so intimidated by because it was very thick and also felt a little bit outside of my genre, but I heard so many good things about it. So I was like, I, I've got to, I've got to read it. And it is about Addie LaRue, um, set in France in 1714. And she is basically finds herself running away because she's desperate to escape a marriage she doesn't want to be in. And in her panic, she decides that she's going to pray to the gods. It's the gods that only answer after dark, which no one is supposed to pray to, but she does because she's, like we said, desperate and panicking, and she makes a deal. Although, of course, as all deals go, this one comes with a price, and she realizes that in this deal to have a life of immortality, no one will ever remember her or her name or who she is after meeting her. And so you follow her through you know, centuries and decades of her living this life where no one remembers who she is. And then one day, 300 years later, someone does remember her name. And so that's also kind of a a fun spin or twist in the book. And I paired this one with a chilled Zinfandel. And Anne, you and I both have a love for chilled red wine, don't we? We do. We've talked about how, gosh, where did I hear this? It might have been in Hungary where they gave this talk at the International Wine Festival about how, look, they say your red is supposed to be at room temperature, but room temperature in old castles was like 50 degrees. Yes. Not 72. Yeah. Yes. That's so true. I remember when I first learned about chilling red wine, I was like, what are you talking about? And so I especially love chilling a red that has like some really jammy notes in it or or a red that's lighter. But the reason I like the Zinfandel with this book is because I feel like a Zinfandel can be kind of shocking and surprising, a little bit moody. It is still like dark and decadent, but it has those fruity notes. And so you add in that chilling element and it gives it just a little bit of brightness. So I feel like it's covering all the layers and that's what, like, that's right. When I sat down and read this book, I was like, I just wanted a big glass of chilled Zinfandel. Brie, I know you and I both enjoyed Ariel Lahan's Codename Helen, which is a book I really enjoyed. Can I tell you a pairing story about that? Oh, yes. So back in the before times in 2019, we hosted <laughs> our first annual Modern Mrs. Darcy book club retreat in Louisville, Kentucky. It was amazing. We had one planned for 2020. It did not happen. Haven't had another one yet, but like we are treasuring these memories. But one of the things we did is Ariel's publisher was kind enough to supply all our attendees with advanced review copies of this book, which was not out yet. And she came up from Nashville to Louisville to join us to talk about the book. And you've read Helen, you know, but she is a Australian born French spy who was key in World War II for the resistance. Just an incredible woman, incredible story, leaps off the page, so amazing. But the French 75 cocktail is key in this book. And Ariel had never had one. So (gasps) I can't believe that. I know. We hosted our retreat conversation with 18 readers in a living room in Airbnb in downtown Louisville. We had French 75s to go with our discussion of code name Helen. I hadn't had one before either. That was new to me. But it was just so fun to enjoy like a literal taste of the book and have that moment together. It was delightful. Wait, no one can top that. 
<laughs> and to have the author there also tasting it for the first time. That is so fun. Something that I loved about this character in the book is that she had such a sense of self. Like she knew what she liked. She, she always had red lipstick on. She loved her heels, even though she's like fighting in the resistance. She loved her French 75s. I just felt like I knew exactly who she was. Yes. Now I want to read that book again. I'm talking about it. I know. I love that book so much. Okay, let's go back to a strong sense of place, food on the page element. What would you pair with Britt Bennett's The Vanishing Half, which I know we both really enjoyed? I loved The Vanishing Half. I was revisiting this book because I was like, oh, surely there is like such a perfect pairing for this book. And very early on in the book, it talks about the small town where Stella and Desiree grew up. They're the identical twins in this book. And this small no-name town would always have a Founders Day dance every year. Everyone was a part of it. Everyone took part somehow making food, bringing drinks, whatever it was. And the two things that were really highlighted in this gathering were rum, punch, and barbecue. And I was like, oh my gosh, that would be so fun to have a book club discussion about The Vanishing Half, such like a rich layered book, and also enjoying rum, punch, and barbecue. Which is right at the beginning of the book. So totally spoiler-free. Come enjoy. Yes. Welcome in. Well, I love all those ideas for pairings. And I also love how you talked about how you got into cooking because food is such an important part of community and building community for you. And I love how when you have a good pairing, like, sure, you can make it at home and enjoy it by yourself, but also like how fun to invite readers in to experience that with you. I know I've used the words book club a lot in this episode, and that's that's not a coincidence. It is so true. It's like, let's make this a whole experience. And I don't think I realized until after talking with you a little bit, how much like your reading life and also your cooking life can kind of intersect how you approach both of those things can be very similar. Well, you want to be smart about it. You want to know what you need to know so that you can really like let go and enjoy the experience. Exactly. Well, Bree, thank you so much for those wonderful ideas. And readers, if you try any of these suggestions or have your own books plus food and drink pairing options, we would love to see. Tag What Should I Read Next on Instagram so we can check it out. And Brie, what's your handle? They can tag you as well. It is at Brie McCoy. McCoy is M-C-K-O-Y, so that's always fun. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. And Brie, I have two very important questions for you. What are you cooking next? And what are you reading next? Okay, these are great questions. What am I cooking next? I'm actually going to be making my ribs from my book tonight, which is kind of funny because we ended on talking about barbecue and rum punch. So maybe I need to mix up some rum punch, but I don't know. I have a craving for barbecue and I love ribs. So I'm making these ribs tonight actually. And then what I'm reading, okay, this is very fascinating because I actually went to the Instagram yesterday about this book. I'm so confused because I'm having a hard time getting into it, but it has gotten so much great attention and great reviews. And it's called Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. And I think I'm 30% through. And I do really like character-driven books and I do love dramas, but for some reason, I do not find myself picking up this book or turning to this book or thinking about this book. You know, some of those books, they have the best payoff and you're like, I'm so glad I stuck with it. And then other books, you're like, I should have just put that down. That's where I'm at with this book. I'm like at that intersection of do I push through or do I put it down? Do you have thoughts? 
Oh, I do. I wish you could tell me what's happening at the 30% mark without spoilers. I love that book. I also love messy, moody family dramas. That is Mm -hmm. something that I am here for. I will say I think there's a good payoff there. But that book is really like Mosaic, where you get to know every individual family member living their own life, and you spend a lot of time maybe feeling a little bit siloed, especially early in the book. It's so, so sad. And also, I think, really beautifully done and touching. I think it depends on what kind of mood you're in. I think you're right. I Part of me was like, maybe it's timing. Maybe I'm not in a like moody family drama like era right now <laughs> because it is so sad. You said that so well, feeling a little siloed. I definitely feel like I'm looking from the outside in and I'm like grasping to feel more connected. But maybe it's just a put down for now, not a put down forever. I will say this, knowing what you've enjoyed, because friends, Brie has really enjoyed some sad, (laughs) beautiful, moving, lyrically written books. But I'm not sure the energy of this book matches the energy of what you're Mm -hmm. experiencing in your life right now with the Cook's book coming out. So if you wanted a total contrast in your reading life, yes, this would be perfect. But I imagine that you'll want something that more matches the mood instead of feels like the antidote to the mood of the rest of your life. Come back to this one in September. Oh, that's so good. Okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to come back to it. I th- and I think you're right. That's, that's, this is not the mood I'm in. This is not the life I'm living right now. All right. Since I was invited to be bossy, there you go. <laughs> I love it. You can boss me all the time about books. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you find the right book for right now. Um, Abby Jimenez had one come out in April. Maybe that would be a good one. Yes, you're right. Oh, that might be the one I go straight to after this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wouldn't be sad about that at all, but I hope you enjoy whatever you pick up. And I'm just cheering you on in the Cook's Book. Thank you so much for lending your expertise and wonderful pairings to the podcast today. Thank you, Anne. It was so fun talking with you. And now I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go get snack. Thanks, Bree. (laughs) Thanks, Anne. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Bree, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. Find Brie on Instagram at Brie McCoy and at her website, BrieMcCoy.com. That's Brie, B-R-I, McCoy, M-C-K-O-Y.com. Be sure to check out the full list of titles we talked about at What Should I Read Next? Podcast.com. If you're on Instagram, we'd love to see you there. Follow our show at What Should I Read Next and connect with me at Ann Bogle. That's Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. We always appreciate it when you share our posts and stories with your friends, and we'd love to see what you are reading, cooking, and eating lately. Show us your favorite book, food, or drink pairings, and be sure to tag us in your posts or stories. Another way to keep up with all things What Should I Read Next is with our newsletter. Sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter, and we'll send our updates directly to your inbox. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is created each week by Will Bogle, Holly Wokachevsky, and Studio D Podcast Production. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.